Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 207, or 207 for the long version. I'm Derek Moore, your host. With me is my always semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestercelli. Jay, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Derek. Happy to be here. Number 207. That's awesome. It's great stuff. So, all right, we're going to get into a couple things. First, the Super Bowl is coming up, and by the time people hear this, they might hear it before. Oh, the game's in the evening, so they might hear it before. You've heard the term fair-weather fan, right? I have heard that. And do you want to tell our audience what it, what it means? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it's somebody that, you know, likes a team when the team is doing well. They kind of pick up on it. And I have – let me use an example. All of a sudden now there's a lot of uh, Philadelphia Eagle fans coming out of the woodwork, in my opinion. And I would say they are fair weather fans, whereas guys like you and I who have been uh, tried and true giant fans through the last – not this year, but the previous five or six years, we were awful – we are not fair weather fans. How's that for an example? Yeah, no, that that's a good one. And it ties in well because there is something called the AAII. That's the, uh, what's that, American Association of Individual Investors, and they run sentiment polls. We've actually talked about this before. And I think there's some fair weather fans in there. And it really should be no surprise, but after 44 consecutive weeks where bears are greater than the bulls, and that was a record, this according to uh, Charlie uh, Bellello, and he put out a, a Y charts thing. When you look at net sentiment, so that's bulls minus bears, it's at the highest level. It looks like since maybe January of, uh, oh, no surprise, January of 22, probably. So what does this mean? It means that all of a sudden they're surveying individual investors and they're like, yeah, no, we're bullish. We're bullish. The market was down 25% at one point, a little bit over 25% on a price basis. January 22 to around, you know, it was right, right around 4,800, a little bit less to 3,580. Jay, these are fair weather fans, but it's no surprise. Like people want to buy when the market's up and when the market's down, they start to sell. And later we'll, we'll talk about the ramifications of that. But this is like textbook fair weather fans and sentiment, right? But look, like, but this shouldn't surprise you. You're a market expert. You understand that sentiment and psychology of the market are closely linked. And when things start to look good in the market, people become optimists if they're trading, right, and investing. And, you know, fundamentally, you know, it's been uh, some very interesting data that has come out in the last, let's just say, week, week and a half, right, between uh, the Fed meeting and that really strong jobs report and, you know, like all of a sudden, maybe people are getting a little more like, oh, I don't, you know, like things aren't as bad. But but really, has anything really changed, Derek? Like, you know, the Fed, uh, Powell spoke a couple times in the last, I'll say, 10 days or so. And he said the same thing. We have more to go. We have more to go. We, the risk is, you know, easing too soon. Right. But yet the market seems to be you know, a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. And so, yeah, I'm with you that all of a sudden things don't look as uh, gloomy to the average individual. And so I can see how they're a little more, you know, uh, optimistic because it's price driven and we've had a really strong start to the year. When I look at this too, and I think about, imagine if all you did was watch CNBC and I'm, look, I, I, I'm not sure that CNBC helps a lot of people because 
what I see these days, and I see it all the time, is you have somebody goes on there and they give the same talking points. And then somebody else gets those talking points from that person and it becomes a circular argument. But there were people who went on CNBC at the beginning of you know January of 22 and they said, oh, the market's too high. The market's overvalued. And guess what? It, it probably was. In fact, it, we know it was. And the market corrected that. At this point, we know it was. Yeah, well, at this point, <laughs> right. yeah, sure. And But then, of course, the we also had people come on in October of 22 when the market was below 3,600 and say, ah, oh, you know what, I, I, I don't know, I, I need to wait till it goes a little bit lower and things become cheaper. And there's still people, and now the market, you know, it's off 4,200. We never quite got through there yet. It's down below 4,100 again. But now I hear people again saying, you know, if, if the, I'm waiting for the market to get a little bit cheaper. The market was cheaper. It was cheaper. And so you didn't buy then. And you're like, oh, no, this time if it goes down, this time I'll buy if it goes back to that level. The first time, no, no, no. And maybe things have changed. But I got to be honest, like the market goes where it goes. And, you know, this sentiment thing is just... Like you said, Jay, we see it again and again. That's why people were in cash in 2008, right? Yeah. Look, you, by the way, this is like you sound a little, you know, upset, Derek. Like it's not often I, I hear this tone <laughs> in your voice. Like you're mad. Like, hey, you're still in cash. I'm mad at you for that. Like, what are you gonna? Like, <laughs> like look, what is what is the thing that you and I always tell people, right? We say, look, if you're gonna decide to go to cash to find your entry point, right? Okay, fine. You. You feel you've hit a point where you need to sell and go to cash, then great. Tell me when it is you're going to rebuy. And if you can't answer that question, you shouldn't be going to cash, right? You need to know the exit and the entry uh, together, right? Just like when you buy a stock, you should know where you're willing to sell it or start to take some profits. Like just a little bit of discipline in your thought and remove the emotion. And next thing you know, you can actually have a disciplined approach. And you may not be right, but at least you have you know an idea and you can take emotion out of it. You know, that's it's one of the most important things when it comes to investing is remove, uh, you know, emotion from your investing plan. Uh, look, I'm going to steal a quote from my book, right, which was, uh, have you ever said to yourself after you made a decision, geez, I wish I was a little more emotional when I made that decision? No. And definitely not with investing. So, look, I think you're just you just want people to have a plan and stick to it, right? I mean, that's I think that's what you're talking about here, Derek. And going to cash is is hard. You could miss out just as much on the way up that you might have avoided on the way down. So it's it's one of those things that just have your parameters set. By the way, Jay, I will say that was of course a quote from your book, "Buy and Hedge." What a great uh, Valentine's Day gift. To, to get available yeah, on Amazon. That's true. <laughs> it's, it's my highest recommended Valentine's Day gift. Find it on Amazon. Buy and hedge the five iron rules for investing over the long term. It's a wonderful gift. There you go. And the nice thing is, it's not and like by the, the way. Yeah. Good. I was going to say, you should pair it with this other wonderful book called The Broken Pie Chart. Yes. I believe also available on Amazon. Yeah. And the nice thing is, too, if you give it to your, uh, uh, your wife or your significant other, uh, as a Valentine's Day credit, and they and they throw it back at you. Luckily, it's not War and Peace size. Both of our books are, you know, a, a good size, readable size, I would say. Uh, but it's it's not going to hurt you too much if you get thrown at you. If if you would like to talk finance uh, on your romantic date for Valentine's Day, it's a perfect book to get stimulate your your thoughts. Exactly. Nice. 
All right. I'll put a link to those in the show notes as always. You know, the interesting thing, Jay, is it's not only the individual investors. Uh, there's the NAAIM, which I'm going to take a guess. I'm not, <laughs> National Association Active Investment Managers. That's, investment Managers. Maybe. Yeah, that, I think that's right. That sort or, of sits. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, Something with Investment Managers. Yeah, we'll go with that. I'm sure it's a, a fine organization. So Charlie Bellello put this out as well. Uh, and this is the equity exposure. So I, I believe this is the highest level of equity exposure since January of 22. And the lowest, I think, was, you know, the low is probably around the same time. Uh, the prior low is March of 20. And I, what's interesting here is that you probably have, you know, active managers, and, and they could be serving pension funds, they could be serving you have you know, investment advisors. And some of this could be, all right, well, people are getting more comfortable with having equity exposure, so they're letting their managers do that. I don't know. I mean, it's just seems like a, one of these, you know, now that the market's going up, people are buying, right, Jay? And maybe, Derek, it's the other way around, right? People are buying, so the market's going up, right? Ed, I'm not sure if this is the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog in this particular uh, data point, but... Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised as the market is kind of pushing up to these, uh, what, what, what do we got, the highest levels since August of 2022, and we had that nice bear market rally, it turned out to be a false rally or a rally that didn't hold. So, we're you know, we were back up to those levels. Yeah, so someone's buying to push it up there. I'm not really surprised that folks are starting to rotate back into stocks, especially with the action in the market. So I don't know which one caused the other one. Maybe it's kind of a little bit of a, a repeating circle there, right? Market's up, people buy, that pushes the market up, right? I'm, I'm not surprised by this data point. And that number, by the way, Derek, is what, around 85% of equity exposure, right? So not a lot of leverage. You can have more than 100% equity exposure, but this number we have now at 85% tells you there's still probably you know, uh, I don't know if they're in bonds or cash with the other 15% or alternatives, but yeah, that's kind of the range that we're in. You asked the question, is it people buying that's moving the market up or are they buying because the market? I, I always remember back in our uh, TD Ameritrade days, I had Ralph Akinpour on as a guest, uh, the, the famous technician. And he, he was telling a story where I think it was one of the major news networks, uh, there was some market turmoil. And I think they had called him and they asked, if, if they'd come, he'd come on and explain it. And I think they wanted to know what he would say. And I, I'm paraphrasing now. It's, uh, oh, there are more sellers than buyers. And I don't know if they called him to have him on that day, you know, because that wasn't a good explanation. But yeah, I mean, if there are oh, more buyers more than, than sellers, the markets go up. It's, it's a, it's a voting machine. It's supply and demand. So it's not the first time you've pulled that one out, by the way, you, you do say that from time to time. Yeah. I, when people ask me, I'm like, I don't know, more buyers than sellers. It is certainly we got over any year that we have a bear market, there's also a lot of tax selling. And so we could have seen, although, you know, even the end of the year, we closed near the lows for the quarter, but we didn't make new lows. Um, but you would think that most people have tax harvested and sold. So I don't know, maybe that's part of it too. But Jay, you've always made the point that even just missing, like trying to time the market, trying to 
you know, be tactical, it can cause you some trouble. And, and you recently updated some of the research you did about over a 20-year period, over a 10-year period. If you just missed, what was it, Jay, the two best days of the year? Want to talk, talk us through this and kind of what you found in, in when you ran the updates? Yeah, yeah. So, the, right, the study was uh, meant to explain why in staying invested is really important, right? And uh, timing the market is really hard to do. And if you had missed the best two years of any year, the difference in your returns. And going back 20 years to 2003, just staying invested in the market, you would have gone up about 245% over that 20-year period. But if you had just missed the best two days, like if you're invested, but you take out the best two days, uh, your returns over that 20-year period are minus 15, minus 15%. So that is a very large swing that takes you not only from, you know, oh, less positive, but it actually brings you negative. And uh, so, but listen, maybe not everybody thinks about it over a 20-year period. What about a 10-year period, right? So we also looked at that. Same example, take out the best two days of the last 10 years. The S&P was up about 108%, but a portfolio that missed the best two days is only up 10%. So you have a significant underperformance. And by the way, it's just not one or two of these days. Like it's consistently, uh, you know, widening over time that uh, when you miss those best two days that uh, that you have this underperformance. And I always, you know, ask folks, guess when the best two days usually are, right? Usually right after the worst two days, right? And so just when everybody is in the middle of doing their panic selling, right? And you go, wow, market's going to have a down four, down 5% day, you know, people are running for the hills and there's capitulation and there's fear and they're out. The snapback usually comes a day after and investors that miss that end up having this dramatic lag, right? I mean, we could go back and do this study that if you sold on that worst day, you know, how, what your performance would be just skipping the very next day, you know, one single day. And again, you would also find a dramatic lag in the performance here. So, you know, it's just, it's just meant to, to help people understand that, you know, timing the market is really tough and just, you don't know when the best two days, Derek, do you know when the best two days of the year are going to be? Well, I used to joke when I would be in front of large crowds talking about investing. I said, okay, grab your pen. I'm going to tell you the, you know, here's the, here's when you want to exactly exit the market. Here's the best time to place your trades and everyone's heads would go down. They'd start to write. And I'm like, no, no, how would I know that? I don't know that Jay. I don't, <laughs> there's, there's no way to know it, you know? So this study, by the way, so that does not include dividends, right? So we, we're just using a price return. Oh yeah. It's not dividends. It's just straight up price change of the SPY. Actually, I think the ETF SPY. Yes. I'll have to go back and look in your book too. Here we're referring to Buy and Hedge again, the book. And we're, this wasn't a planned, uh, we didn't even plan on talking about these. But I seem to remember in one of the chapters, didn't you have uh, a table with the single best days and the single worst days? And I remember they were sort of all clustered around each other, right? They are. That's exactly right. They are clustered together. And so if you're looking for a book to read during your President's Day off, on the 20th of February, also a great read. If you haven't finished it by Valentine's Day, take the time, continue to read the book, <laughs> and you can see the data that outlines when the best days of the year and the worst days have happened in the market, and they are absolutely clustered together, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, we're joking around about it, but it, it, that's what I remember, and it was, 
it's one of those, and we saw it in March of 20 too. I mean, we had some of those massive down days and then you had massive up days. I mean, you and, saw it in 08, right? You yeah. saw it in 08, 09. Yeah. You saw it in 2020. I mean, heck, just, I mean, Derek, I think we had a day where the market went up 10% in a single day, right? Right after the market had dropped like 13. Like it was, there were some wild days there. And if you were just out because you just couldn't take it anymore and you missed those big up days, it's a hard, it's a hard to, thing to, to, to make up when you miss the big days. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we say our, the core thing we do is just being invested and being hedged and we're having buffers. If anyone wants to, you know, learn more about that, uh, Derek.more at zegafinancial.com, D-E-R-E-K.M-O-O-R-E at Z's and Zebra, E is an Eddie, G is in George, A is an Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. All right, Jay, let's switch to a little bit of the the economic side. And what I'm seeing is there's some mixed signals on inflation. I'll give you an example. There's uh, the Atlanta Fed tracks wages or wage growth, I should say. And while wage growth on a year over year basis, meaning what was it in January or December, and then you go back a year, you compare it to that number, uh, 7.3% is the year over year wage growth for job switchers. So people who have switched jobs and went somewhere else to work. It's only 5.4%. I shouldn't say only. That's a, that's a misnomer there. But it's lower. It's 5.4% on a year-over-year basis for job stayers. I'll, I'll say two things about this. The rate of change has come down off the highs. But that is still higher. And the spread between a job switcher and a job stayer is still pretty wide. Like, Jay, just looking at this, I'm saying... In a bad labor market, people don't leave their jobs because, hey, I have a job. This is great. But people still, it seems like, are able to switch and they're making more while switching. Uh, I don't know if you read anything into this, but it's a mixed message for me. Well, it, it is it is interesting um, because one of the fears about inflation is that it makes its way into wages and wage inflation is very sticky, right? And so I think this is definitely a concern um, uh, of the feds that they're uh, the, when I say the feds, I don't mean like the FBI, I mean the Federal Reserve. And uh, I think that while this is, um, you know, the widest that we've seen in the last 25 years, right, between the switchers and the stayers, they are both also at their 25 year high. I mean, you're right. They came off their maybe like, was it, what do you think that was two months ago when it was at the highest? Um it's just, it's one of those things, Derek, that uh, I think the availability of jobs, if you can switch, you're definitely, it's happening and you're getting, you know, you're giving yourself a bigger raise than staying at your job. Uh, but you're, listen, I think your job, your wages are keeping up with uh, inflation anyway. And you've got, you know, a 5.4% increase is where we landed this last uh, month. And so, you know, my, my two cents on this is I think it's bad for inflation that this is going up. I also think, though, it does signal the economy is still healthy because people are switching and getting paid more, which is why the jobs number was so confusing last week and blew away everybody's expectations. So wait, do we or do we not have a strong labor market? It's clearly strong. Or do we, do we not have inflation? We clearly have inflation in wages. So I think, Derek, you know, boil all that up. It's, it's, you know, this this lacks, you know, volume and, you know, is it five people that switched or 500,000 that switched? We, I don't know that data point on this, but to me, it's just it's it's exactly what the Fed is trying to bring down. 
and I think hence why the market reacted so negatively to that jobs market, because it means the Fed probably has more work to do to slow down uh, growth in the economy. Well, speaking of slowing down, the U.S. Uh, Atlanta Fed, Federal Reserve Bank of uh, Atlanta, leisure and hospitality, while the you know, in aggregate, it's off its highs, 7.2% year-over-year wage growth in that sector. And Jay, that is the highest it's been going back to 97. And it's not going down, it's going up. So I think, I don't know, is this maybe a reflection of the fact that hospitality, and that's probably what, you know, boat captains, hot air balloon captains, servers, <laughs> hotel workers. It's probably more like, right, servers and, you know, yeah. right, restaurant workers, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The hot air balloon captain, that, that guy, we want him to feel really good about his wages. We don't want him going to work angry, right? I've never been in a hot air balloon, have you? Oh, I have not. All right. But I want the guy that was driving it to be really happy about his compensation. Yeah, yeah, you do. So, but I, your point in all seriousness, right? Like this has hit a new high in the last 25 years and it it's, I mean, the, it's accelerating, right? It looks like it's going up. So what, you know, the point of this one, what Derek is, look, there's part, there's sectors within this job market that are absolutely showing wage increase. I'd argue this is probably for the most part on the lower end of, um, you know, the, 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 the salary curve, right? This isn't software engineers. This isn't, you know, I'm going to say financial experts. It's not lawyers. It's not doctors. It's hospitality and leisure. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Which ha- is problematic in its own way, because when you think about when the stimulus checks went out, what happened there was the, the lowest quartile or really went up the most uh, not only in, in wage growth, but also in, uh, uh, you know, in savings as well. And, and look, maybe those people did need a, a, an increase. Uh, they haven't been growing a lot, but yeah, this is, this is a mixed signal to me. And this seems to, on the surf, on, under the surface, be problematic for the Fed, you know, and I'm, I'm smiling as I say this, that Powell wants you to be out of a job and the market to crash. That's what Powell wants. And I'm saying that with all sarcasm. Uh, this is not doing going his way, right? Nope, nope. He's definitely got some work to do uh, when you look at data points like that. Yep, absolutely. Leave it to to you and I to predict where markets are going to be. Anyone can go back and listen to last year's December episode where we made our predictions for 2022, and boy, we were wrong. That's why we buy and we hedge. We don't try and time markets. But there's some new data out. This is from... Uh, it's Bloomberg and Stifle, if I'm reading the, the thing right. Somebody put this on Twitter. And it's uh, the inflation-adjusted S&P 12 months before and 18 months after inflation peaks. And, and the quick thing is that after inflation peaks, markets historically, on average, have bottomed in month seven um, and take off. So we peaked on on the CPI, at least so far. We don't know. We'll know afterwards. But it seems like, you know, year over year, we were 9.1% in June of 22. And Jay, I mean, it looks, I mean, the market's bottomed, uh, you know, what's that, September, October. We're higher than we were then. But month seven would be January of 23. So is this saying that we're going to take off from here, according to this? 
or we've already taken off and we're just early. I don't know. Yeah. So let me make sure I get the data point clear, right? So based off of this study, and it looks like they've uh, identified 15 major inflation peaks using CPI. And uh, historically, the average bottom of the market was seven months later, right? So this time it was June of 2022. And you're saying, this chart is saying, I know it's not you, Derek, this information, this research is saying, hey, we should see a bottom in January 2023. Well, clearly, we're not at the bottom. We are off the bottoms uh, of, uh, of, of the market, right? We bottomed out. Uh, when was that? I'll say October, right? Early October, late September. And so that was definitely not, you know, seven months following June. So with these 15 data points, is this one just, you know, on the early side of it? Or have we yet to see the bottom uh, uh, because we're seven months now? We've yet to see the bottom and we may hit a new low. I'm not sure, right? We're still kind of in that range here, Derek. I don't, like you said, don't don't look for us to predict, to predict where the market's going. But there's really two scenarios, and this isn't very helpful, but either we have bottomed or we have yet to bottom. <laughs> I guess I'm going to be right on one of those. And the, the my point being that this, this is so, if this was the bottom, it was it was an early bottom, right? When I take a look at it, uh, uh, at, at the way that they're describing their methodology here when they do this. Um, that would have been an early bottom. So, but we're clearly not there now. So it would be a late bottom if it doesn't ha- if we could, if we do have another retracement, you know, I don't know, like if, if the way to interpret this data is, um, it's, it's not very predictive to me, but it's interesting. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, how do, how do we use this one? Right. Except for the fact that, uh, was it early or is it still about to come? I'm not sure. And I think by the, the data that you have put together here and you're talking about wage growth, you know, maybe we haven't even topped out on CPI, although that would be quite the surprise if we haven't topped out on on inflation. Right. Would you agree that seems to be the case? CPI inflation is definitely slowed. Yeah. I mean, so the numbers get harder to make a new high, barring a really strong push higher in inflation. Just be, you know, you're you're looking at. So the January numbers, which will be out, is it next week? I think, I think it's next week. January uh, yeah. numbers, yeah, yeah, right. Right. Yep. So it's coming. January thirty first. What's the basket of goods in the CPI? And then they take a look at January thirty first of the year prior, and they do a year over year. the The problem with if you were saying, "Hey, I think inflation is going to make a another high. It's going to be above nine point one percent." Uh, the estimates now are probably, you know, 6.2, 6.3 year over year, somewhere around there, give or take. So the math just gets harder because that basket, you know, if the basket was 200 and it goes to 300, uh, to give you an example. Well, now, you know, to get that same rate of change, it would have to go up a lot more. So if it goes to 350, it, it's not going to be the same. So, yeah, Jay, I don't know. But, you know, we're all guilty yeah, go ahead. I was going to do an eggs analogy, but I think you made the point clear about how inflation, you know, stays high, but doesn't increase. Maybe I say prices can stay high, but that doesn't mean the rate of change. It's a rate of change versus the actual price, right? So just because inflation... And this is the, the most misunderstood thing with inflation. It's that inflation going down does not mean we're going to go back to the prices we had prior to this run-up. It just means that 
they're going to stop going up. I mean, this inflation is is booked in. I was just going to say too, I mean, honestly, maybe we're all guilty of this in, in financial industry where we get a bunch of data, we we see something and then it gets circulated around and that's the thing for a while. Remember at the end of the year, it was the elections, which by the way, so far has been right that, you know, market is up in the year th- three. We're only through the first month, but I don't know. I don't really have much, much else to, uh, to comment on this, Jay, do you? Uh, no, like, you know, like that's a fun data point to have and nothing, I don't think there's any way you work that in <laughs> to, to our investment and our investment process. And actually, Derek, I would almost say, you know, when you, when you look at a lot of this data, right, we're all trying to help people get an understanding of kind of the, uh, uh, the swirlings underneath the market that may or may not push it up. Everyone's looking for kind of insight as to what is going to happen going forward. And, uh, you know, the market, I always like to say, will surprise the most people, right? It just has a habit of doing that. And the opposite of what the, the everybody thinks of happening will happen. And so while this is all information to kind of give us a general gist of you know, which way the currents are moving. Uh, I mean, it's hard to make predictions out of these. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I think it's, it's, uh, but you made the point before and I think, and from memory and from looking at history, markets tend to bottom first, then it's earnings and then the economy. And it doesn't have to be that way in the future. It doesn't have to be that way this time, but that's what we've seen in the past. Like markets are, they, they have the mind of their own. Like they have a sense for what's coming. And a lot of times, you know, like look at March of 09 was the bottom. The economy didn't get out of a recession until after that. And earnings didn't bottom until after that, but the market did. And so, you know, whether this was the bottom happened already or whether there's a bottom yet to come, I mean, who knows? Um, but I think you made that point. It's a very good point, Jay. All right. All right. Uh, a couple other quick hits here. Just this is interesting stuff to me. You know, I watch this stuff on the periphery and I, I saw a chart. It's durable goods inventories divided by sales ratio. So it's kind of like you want this to be on the lower end because it means you're turning your inventory over. And by the way, your inventories could, this could be low as well because you have no inventory. So, you know, it's, it's sort of, but Durable goods uh, over sales is higher now. It's the highest it's been probably since, I don't know, March. Uh, I'm going to say like June of 2020, maybe. I don't know, Jay, if this is anything, but. Well, I, I think it's something, right? Yeah. I mean, look, the one, so it's a ratio. So either, you know, it's two data points and the, the relationship between the two of them. So you're right. Sales could just be down and inventories could be the same or. Sales can be the same and inventories can be up, right? To cause this, you know, numerator denominator thing to happen. What I would what I would say that I, I like about this data point, Derek, is that, you know, you and I have talked about the cause of inflation for over a year now has been, oh, maybe close to two years, has been around supply, right? And I think inventories are a decent proxy for supply. Right. And so if, you know, I guess I would ask the question from this or I would maybe make the statement from this that the supply chain problems seem to be working themselves out. Right. You may not, you know, you may have to pay more than you did a few years ago, but it's there if you want to get it. And by it, it could be anything. So I just I feel like that is what I read out of this, that 
you know, the thing that drove a lot of the inflation that you and I have said drove a lot of the inflation, right? Be, it being a supply driven inflation cycle, not a demand driven inflation cycle. I mean, this is this is like a data point that helps me think that that is, you know, that's done. If you need a toaster, they got toasters. That's what this tell me. Yeah. Got a toaster. Yeah. Yeah, you need a refrigerator, you get a refrigerator. Listen, you may be paying more because now everything's more expensive. You need a car. You can get a car. There was a period of time you couldn't get a new car. You can get a new car now. Still may be waiting a little bit, but it's not like it was, you know, six, nine months ago. You may not remember this, but I probably had a chart that was very similar at the beginning of 2022. And one of the, and we, we said it, it could be two things. And we looked at this when the sales ratios was really, you know, the inventories over sales was really low. One is that companies are going to have to keep ordering to refill their inventories. And that's a very bullish thing. Well, it turned out 2022 was a bearish year. But to your point, I mean, you, you never really, there's sometimes stuff that's on the periphery below this. You and I are not analysts covering durable goods. Uh, if I had an analyst, you know, from a, a major investment bank, they'd probably give us much more insight than you and I are giving. But um, one one thing I do look at too is, uh, this is another one, lumber and other construction materials, inventories over sales ratio. This one is getting close to the peak of, you know, the COVID recession. And I don't know, this one seems like it's easy to explain that houses aren't moving, maybe they're slowing down their construction. I don't know. Maybe that's that's the case, right? Uh, yeah, right. I mean, if people are, I mean, I think we've heard a lot of the stories about uh, people that contracted for a house and just walked away and said, nope, I don't want to do it now, right? It's like people are like, money's been a little harder. People maybe a little more concerned. And then, so I think that is one of the things. And, and look, let's face it. If there is one thing the Fed can really impact out of the gate, it's uh, the, the the housing market, right? We know that they, uh, when they cut rates in 2020, it caused this huge real estate boom, right? Everybody, everybody's house today is worth more than it was three years ago. Uh, and so that, and, and by the way, your rents have gone up too, right? So all of that stuff happened when they cut rates. And now as rates come back up, they've slowed this. And then this ripples out into other sectors. I mean, do you remember lumber was the leading uh, was one of the leading uh, uh, supply constrained commodities that drove up inflation, right? I'm going to put you on the spot, uh, Derek. You do you know the price of lumber today? Sorry, coming off the script, right? But versus what it was in 2020 when we were talking about it, it's down, right? Dramatically. Am I fair? Are you gonna are you gonna wing it for me? Are you gonna try and get it? Uh, well, I. <laughs> I actually know about where it was. I think it was around twelve or thirteen hundred. Right. And I'm gonna. I all right. So now I'm gonna look it up because I don't know what it is today, which shows you that it's not a big deal. It's four ninety nine. Random length lumber futures. Uh, let me pull it up. Yeah. Okay. I know you'd be able to pull up lumber futures, I, and it didn't even take you fifteen seconds. So con congrats. I'm not surprised. Sixteen seventy was was the high. I was off by a little bit in in May of 2021. Yeah. And that was a supply thing, right? So even though this whole lumber divided by sales ratio is high, right? The price is not high any longer, right? So, you know, just food for thought there that, you know, the supply situation is definitely working itself out and demand could be back or 
uh, pulling back or, uh, you know, heck, just sales are down, right? So, like, I don't know, Derek, I think, again, I go back to the whole, if it was supply-driven inflation, this kind of a data point tells me supply is available. And look, no surprise if the real estate market or the construction market is having a pullback with all of the impact uh, uh, that the Fed has tried to, to deliver with raising rates. Two more quick things, too. And this is the, I think this speaks to maybe the Fed has gone too far and they're not going to go any further with rates. And then I'll kind of bring us back to what the market says is going to happen. Would it surprise you, Jay, if I told you that in billions of dollars that our last reading, $552 billion is personal savings for the U.S. on a seasonally adjusted basis, not inflation adjusted. Would it surprise you if I told you that is the lowest it's been since Q3 of 2008? Absolutely. That, that would seem low to me. It is. And to put this in perspective, at one point, the savings rate was $4.8 trillion versus $552 yeah, billion. I, mean, I remember the T. Which goes back to the whole idea. When we talked about this yeah, with the you know, months ago. Yeah. <laughs> so this tells me that maybe inflation is taking more of a, an impact on people than everyone even understands just looking at the savings rate. It seems like people are spending down their savings and it seems like they've spent down the stimulus checks, the overages, all that stuff uh, that happened you know, during the pandemic. Uh, there's not too much to say on this, Jay, but just I was surprised at that. And this tells me that all this stuff, you know, the economy, remember, one of my theories is we've already been in a recession and it's been a, a small one. Um, this tells me, you know, rates shouldn't go up enough anymore. The Fed's done enough. But the market, Jay, is now implying the federal funds terminal rate, which means the highest that the rate will go. 5.15%. Um, I mean, there's all these different dichotomies and, and things that really don't make sense if one is here and the other's here. But Jay, this is, I think, one of those things where people could get wrong. Everyone thinks inflation's over. Everyone thinks the Fed is only going to raise another quarter. Fed's saying something different. The market's saying something different. And then we have all these data points that tell us other things. I don't know. Flip a coin, right? Well, let's let's comment on the, the savings for a minute, right? Like, if savings are dramatically down, like they're they're at, they're ten percent of what they were, you know, at the the peak of the uh, uh, I'll say the the bailouts, right? Uh, you know, that will obviously push down demand, right? Like, there is less money to be spent. I actually think I heard that the money supply has actually shrunk for the first time in what fifty years or some number like that. So I wish I had that in my fingertips. I think you probably know it. But uh, if if the if the money supply is down, if people's savings are lower, then they will spend less. And that's the thing that you and I had always talked about, that inflation is going to naturally fix itself. Right. And you can't the Fed can't impact as much as they think they can or maybe as much as they they uh, they want to a supply driven uh, inflation cycle. And now you're going to have demand coming down on top of supply uh, you know, inventories being high, right? That's not a great combination, right? When, when, when the, uh, the economic activity can't, can't, uh, you know, take care of the, the inventories that are there and you could actually have a deflationary environment with this, right, Derek, like this could flip so fast, uh, the other way 
um, then what happens, right? Does the Fed have to, to pivot, right? So this is what the market is kind of projecting, right? There's a lot of folks that are saying, look, even though the, the terminal rate is projected at over 5% for the Fed funds rate, it's not going to stay there. And the proof is, I'm not saying that, the market is saying that when you look at how strongly the yield curve is inverted, when you know the 10-year is at, let me just get a quick little number here of where the 10-year finished today, right? 3.74, um, the five-year at 3.92. You know, that's significantly lower than where the Fed wants to bring the markets. Somebody's wrong. We've all heard this. Is it the Fed? Is it the market? And it's just it's hard to fight the Fed here. And they've told you they're going to keep rates up. The market's not believing it. And data points like the amount of money in savings accounts are one of the reasons why the, the market doesn't believe it. It is interesting, too, by the way, that even if I go back, I mean, this uh, let me pick a random date here. Q1 of 2018, 1.097 trillion. So it's it's just interesting. I'm going to spend a little time on this and see, because to me, this tells me a lot of things. I'll report back on this, but uh, let's switch to, I don't know if we want to give our Super Bowl predictions. Uh, I do you have a, Do you have a sense there? Or, or actually, you have a show that you wanted to recommend, right? Oh, if well, I, I, yes. If we want to go there, I think uh, I've been watching uh, The Last of Us on HBO. Not bad, kind of a new take on uh, you know an apocalyptic uh, humanity, right? But the the Super Bowl list. By the time people listen to this, it's already over. So I actually, unfortunately, while I'm not a fan of the Eagles, I think they're just way too strong and they're going to win. And I'm definitely not a fan of the Eagles, and I hope they lose ninety nine to nothing. But uh, <laughs> Just watching them go through the playoffs with the power that they did, uh, that's probably not going to happen, and they're probably going to Now, granted, they played the Giants, and they played San Francisco, who lost not one, but all of their quarterbacks after, like, the first drive. Yeah, but look, it's what they, how they tore through those defenses is what was most impressive to me. Yeah, I think you make an argument for the Eagles. You can make an argument for the Chiefs. We'll see. I know. Uh, the Last of Us, I'm though, Kansas City, ninety-nine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. So it's is every is it a series, The Last of Us, or is it each? Oh, oh, uh, The Last of Us. Yeah, it's an HBO series. Yep. So I think they've had four. By the time you hear this, it'll be five episodes will have been out. Uh, yeah, it's it's good. It's um, uh, well, you know, it's it's. It's 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 good. Like I'm gonna give it like a seven, seven and a half. Uh I, I'm interested and in what your description reminds me of a book I, I read called The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And uh same thing, kind of a the survival apoc post apocalyptic uh survival, uh about a, a father and son. So it, it's it's a really, really good book. Uh, obviously it's, it's fiction. I shouldn't say obviously, but it, it's fiction. Um, yeah, that, that, well, we're, we, I don't think we have an apocalypse right now. So yeah, obviously fiction. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. And I've been watching the, the thing on Apple TV plus with Harrison Ford, Jason Siegel, uh, what's it called? Shrinker, right? Uh, God, I, I came with a recommendation here. I can't even think of the, uh, the actual name. I have not seen it yet, but I know it's out there. Yep. Shrinking, sure. shrinking. That's what it is. So Jason Siegel, Harrison Ford. And Harrison Ford's actually, he's good in this. Like he's, he sort of plays. Why are you surprised? Do you think it's 
Indiana Jones isn't great. You think Han Solo's not? What are you talking about? We love who doesn't love Harrison? It's a different role for him, though. It's like you know, he's sort of self-deprecating humor, and um, he's kind of being funny. So I, I'm about five episodes through right now. It's on Apple TV Plus. So that's I'll, I'll go with that for this week. That's uh, all right, Jay. Well, uh, I think if the more buyers and sellers, the market go up. Will go up next week if there's more sellers than buyers. The market goes down. That's where I'm, I'm ending this. Jake, thanks again for coming on. And uh, for everyone else, hope you enjoyed the Super Bowl. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.